The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning is found again in the Gospel of John in chapter 12 and begins with verse 44. Find John chapter 12 and verse 44 in a copy of the word. This passage of scripture begins in this way. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know, this is verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Father, I ask your blessing on our pastor as he opens your word to us, Lord, help us to uh, have minds, to hear ears, to hear, whether our minds are racing with distractions or dulled by fatigue. Father, may your Holy Spirit deploy his words for our conviction and encouragement. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, this closes the, uh, this section of John's gospel in the 12th chapter. Jesus, in it, tells us why he came. He did not come on his own. He does not speak for himself. He's not making a name for himself. His judgment is not his own. Why did Jesus come? To be a messenger to reveal God to us, to do God's mission as light in a dark world. Earlier, in verses 35 and 36, Jesus, he gave one last appeal to these um, Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowd in particular. And remember, he said, walk. He's appealing to them. He's urging them, this is it. Walk while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Come, lest darkness overtake you. And then Jesus departed and hid himself from them. And that was it. That was his last appeal to the Jews. After giving it, he left and he hid himself from them. So so what we have here is John 
closing this section of his gospel and focusing this, this um, section that focuses on the public ministry of Jesus. He recalls these words of Jesus, verses 44 through 50 that we just read, and think of these as a summary statement. This is a summary statement concerning Jesus and why he came as his public ministry is coming to a close. These words tell us why he came, but they also serve to vindicate Christ because he is being rejected. These words vindicate. They, in other words, they prove, they support, they defend his purpose, his claims, the claims that he makes that ultimately God commands of the people to repent and to believe in, on Jesus. Jesus gives this, this passionate appeal, and this is a passionate appeal because how does, how does it begin? John tells us that Jesus cried out. And we only read that of Jesus about five, five times in Scripture, in the, in the Gospels. So I don't want you to imagine that tranquil, hippie Jesus that you see in pictures and and the movies, Jesus is passionate here. He, he cries out concerning why he has come. And there are times where we see the passion of Christ. We see it as he takes up the whip and clears out the money changers in the temple. We see it at the Feast of Tabernacles where it says Jesus cried out If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him drink. We read of Jesus crying out, Lazarus, come forth. And we read a couple of times Jesus on the cross cries out. So here, Jesus cried out, telling us why he came. And the first reason that we see is that he came as God's messenger. We see this three times in our text where Jesus describes himself as being sent. In verse 44, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus is God's messenger. He is the sent one. Verse 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And then verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me. Jesus came as a messenger from God. Even though he is the Word made flesh, he is God incarnate, he is the eternal Son of God, he is sent by the Father in obedience, in agreement with the Father's will to save us from our sins. So as the sent one, Jesus has the Father's authority. He is qualified to speak. And when mankind rejects him, think of it. They are not only rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God. The one who sent him. This rejection of Jesus is is an offense. It is dishonoring to God. With all that God has done in sending His Son, and we hear it today, still people complain against Him, and they say, look at all the evil in the world. 
Look at all the, the suffering. Why doesn't God do something about it? And we, of all people, should know that he certainly has done something about it. People wonder, doesn't he do something to help? Why doesn't God do something? And how offensive is that question in light of the sacrifice, in light of him sending, in light of Jesus humbling himself, being born a baby that needed to grow and learn in perfect obedience to the Father, to be mocked and rejected the very purpose of him coming to to lovingly give and serve and ultimately sacrifice himself on the cross. And people say, why doesn't God do something? This is God. This is what he's done. God speaks through Jesus. And still people say, no, give give me another Savior. Why can't there be another way? Jesus comes as a as a giver of grace, with good news of salvation, and yet the world rejects him. He may not have been what the people were looking for. He may have certainly challenged their thinking. Specifically, we think of the the Pharisees who enjoyed their supposed goodness and thinking that this would earn a way to, to heaven. And yes, Jesus exposed people's sin. He confronted false teaching. And people don't tend to like being corrected. They don't like being exposed for who they really are. But let's not pretend that God has been silent. That he doesn't care. That he hasn't done anything to solve the problems of this world. The question of Making things right should not be put to God. They should be put to us. He's done everything. So whether or not we believe and receive his works, that that lands on us. His, His answer is in the person of his son, Jesus. And Jesus claims to be God's messenger, the sent one. And these words are not empty. They are, they are proven. You know, anybody can just get up and say, I'm from God, I'm sent from God. How do we know? How is he vindicated in, in this claim? Think of all the miracles that he has done. And people will often look at the miracles of Jesus pointing to his love and compassion. And certainly he was loving and compassionate towards people. But that really was not the point. The point of his miracles, the main point of his miracles was to communicate that, yes, he is the sent one. He does speak for God. He is the Messiah. He has authority to speak for God. So he really is who he claims he is. This is the proof. This is how we can confidently know that, that Jesus is God's messenger. And the Pharisees saw it. Right? They couldn't deny it. They realized the truth of his claims and of his miracles. And so, and yet they reject Jesus. And this is all the more offensive in light of what he has done. A second reason why Jesus came is to reveal God to us. Jesus said, whoever sees me 
sees him who sent me. Think of it. As created beings in the world, what is the, what is the greatest possible gift that we might have as creatures? It would certainly be to know our Creator. To be in relationship with God. And yes, God reveals Himself to us in His Word, but Jesus reveals God to us in a, in a very personal way. So if you want to know what God is like, then look to the person of Jesus. People may wonder, is, is God concerned? Does He care? Does he, does he require anything of me? Does He offer anything to me? And our questions are answered in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we sincerely look at and study the person of Jesus in God's Word, we not only learn about Jesus, we learn about God. Jesus says in verse 45, Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Do you want to see God? Do you want to know who He is? To have a a concept, a, a clearer picture, an understanding of God? See Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus. Reflect upon Him as you read God's Word. Jesus says that if you see Him, if you see Jesus, you'll see, you'll know who God is. We grow in our understanding of God's love by seeing the love of Jesus and that that He would offer Himself as a sacrifice for us. We see the, the holiness of God when we look at the actions of Jesus and And see people's response when they're confronted with, whoa, he he is holy. And what are the responses that we see? They don't want to be in his presence. Either Jesus, either you need to leave or I need to leave. And so we see the holiness of God in the person of Jesus. We learn of God's wisdom. Think about how many questions put to him, trying to trick him, trying to entrap him. And we see the wisdom of God and how Jesus so perfectly deals with these these questions. We see God's saving power as he rescues his own. We need need to get rid of this crazy idea that that contrasts the, the God of the Old Testament with Jesus. The idea that that one is stern and wrathful and unloving and the other bounces little children on his knee and is loving and kind and approachable. And of course, God is holy and just and there, there is an appropriate fear of him. And yes, Jesus was approachable and kind, but that Jesus was kind tells us that God is kind. And that he had a holy zeal for the temple and driving out the money changers tells us that that God is holy. So certainly the, the God of the Old Testament, we should see, the God of the Old Testament was 
gracious. Right from the start. Think of it. His punishment was clearly communicated to Adam and Eve. And he would have been perfectly just to execute them right on the spot. But instead, what does he do? He he shows his grace immediately. He provides for their sin. He, he clothes them with a sacrifice that points to a sacrifice that was to come. He gives hope. He gives He gives them an object of faith to look to as he promises that an offspring will come and will crush the head of the serpent and deal with sin forever. And so God is is certainly loving and gracious right from the start. God is loving and kind and gracious and merciful and he is holy and just and not someone to ignore or belittle. And we see this more clearly by considering and meditating upon the person of Jesus. So if you really want to know and get a clearer understanding of who God is, what He is like, then yes, read, read all of God's Word. But keep in mind that Jesus came specifically so that we might know God. And where the image of God is darkened and distorted All the more, it's because of that rejection of him. But for those who believe, I love how William Hendrickson sums it up. He wrote, knowing Christ means knowing the Father. Loving Christ means loving the Father. Receiving Christ means receiving the Father. Christ and the Father are one. A third reason why Jesus came is his mission. His mission to be light in a dark world. Look at verse 46. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came into a world that was full of darkness. Darkness and sin. And it was his mission to come as light and life. Jesus was sent by God. He reveals God to us and he brings light into a, into a dark and sinful world. This is his mission. This is the reality of who he is. And if you do not believe in him, eventually you will face this reality of darkness and further darkness, of, of a life without light, without peace, without joy. And this fearful reality hits me at times. It hits me when I hear people make blasphemous statements about Jesus, knowing that that one day, I mean, here's the reality, one day they will stand before him. They They will be confronted with the reality of the king. Things are said in a moment and with such arrogance. And the terrible reality is that one day they will stand before Jesus with with absolute clarity, having no doubt about the reality of who he is. And I felt this chill at this realization recently as I heard of a man who said, 
that he'd rather follow after an adulterous relationship. Saying that if being a Christian means staying with my wife, then I suppose I'm not a Christian anymore. And it just gave me a chill to hear that that foolish decision. Does he not realize that one day he's going to stand before Jesus? Does he not believe that it profits him nothing to gain the whole world, let alone a temporary fleeting sexual pleasure, only to forfeit his soul? And this is what his statement is. It is a forfeiting of his soul. And I think he... No, he didn't realize it. But at least he recognized that it's one or the other. These obvious, intentional, rebellious choices, these blatantly disobedient choices are not ones made by followers of Christ. No, they are choices, in essence, to turn away from Christ, to leave the light and to plunge into darkness. How does one stand before Jesus in all his glory, hearing his words, his, his offer of himself to walk in the light, the command to believe in him, the one who has so clearly proven that he is from God and reveals God and is on a mission for God? How can one, how can one stand before him? And I suppose, I think, Maybe they don't stand. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, some with thankful praise and others. The knee will bow in fearful submission at the recognition of who they're confronted with. And I suppose, I think also of those who, in seeing his coming, have that realization. And they're crying for the rocks to fall on them because they can't bear to be in his presence. This is who our Savior is. It gives me a chill to think of someone like this standing before him. I had the same realization as I heard a minister, someone claiming to be a minister of the gospel, Evidently thinking that he was clever or woke. Saying that when Jesus told the Seraphonician woman, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. To actually hear this man say that the woman then confronted Jesus with his racism. And that Jesus repented. Oh. Does that give you a chill? Oh my goodness. Not many should become teachers, certainly. No one should say such things. What blasphemy. To hold, we need to hold firm the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, who even in the face of rejection, still pleads wanting their good, knowing what's coming for those who do not believe. And a time will, his patience will not be forever. 
He says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus' purpose, his reason for coming was not, was not condemnation. He says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But don't misunderstand this, because Jesus will certainly, in a day to come, be the judge. His point here is that his his coming, his initial, his first coming, was not for condemnation. His purpose in coming was for salvation. Jesus said there would be a future judgment. Speaking of his second coming, he says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people. He will judge people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 writes that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. So here in John 12, Jesus, he's not denying that, that future role of judging, but he speaks of his purpose, his purpose in being born, why he came, his life of perfect obedience, all of the miracles done to prove his claims, then dying on the cross. He came for the purpose of salvation. This is why he came. But for those who reject him, he says in verse 48, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. People who have never heard the gospel will be judged for their sins. But those who reject the gospel will especially be judged for rejecting the very words of Jesus. So we should realize that there will be a last day. And people will be astonished. And so we, we should live with this. This is a reality. We should live with this reality in mind. People need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior. With the only answer to their need. No one else died for their sins. So we need to tell people about Jesus. But we also need to keep in mind, you know, we get caught up in life and we need to keep in mind that when we see the wicked prosper, when we see unbelieving, the unbelieving world seemingly living the good life, we need to know, we need to remember the big picture and not be envious. We should realize what awaits them, those who reject Jesus. We need to to always live in light of eternity. Thankful to God for His many gifts, but mindful that we're investing in the future and that the best is yet to come. We should realize that unbelievers will be held responsible for their rejection of the gospel. Jesus taught, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is what's behind the rejection of the gospel. It's not a 
It's not a lack of evidence. No, it's that they loved darkness rather than light. It's a sinful preference, a desire to be in control, to do what you want, and certainly not submit to what God commands. Why else would, why else would people crucify a man who went around healing and teaching good things? Jesus, he proved that he was from God. Jesus revealed our greatest need for showing us who God is. Jesus shines the light to lift us out of the darkness. And those who reject him, they do so only because they prefer the dark. And on the last day, Jesus will be vindicated. His claims will be proven true, supported, justified. They will be defended. There will be no doubt. And these last words of John 12 speak to this. Look at verses 49 and 50. And in closing, I just want to consider how Jesus will be vindicated. First, he will be vindicated because he was given the authority to speak for God. God is the one who gave Jesus the authority to demand that people believe in him as the Son of God, as the Savior. God authorized him to call for faith in him. Christianity insists. Jesus insists by the authority of God that there is no other way. That salvation only comes through Jesus. God has not provided another Savior. And Jesus says that this is what the Father has told him. He's not saying this on his own. He truly speaks for God when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do we, do we doubt Jesus' authority? Do we hesitate and especially in our culture today, fumble around when people ask about other religions and many ways, many paths to God. Well, if we believe Jesus, if we believe his words, that he really does have authority from the Father to say what God tells him to say, and if Jesus says he's the only way to God, then why would we hesitate to give an answer? We need to have confidence in God's Word. We need to speak what is ultimately loving, the truth of God's Word, the truth concerning Jesus, knowing that He will be vindicated. A second way in which Jesus is vindicated is by the character of His message. Think of the fruit of the Gospel. Jesus says in verse 50, And I know that His commandment is eternal life. Eternal life, the character, the fruit of his message is eternal life. It is, it is serving and loving others. It is truth and, and life. Jesus is proven true by the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives. And ultimately, the fruit that leads to eternal life. 
And at the realization of this, he will be praised. At the realization of this, he will be praised. He will be proven true. He will be vindicated. But let me point out an important word in verse 50. The word is commandment. And we don't often think of the gospel in terms of commandment. We think of the gospel and it's true that it is an invitation for people to come and believe, to to the thirsty to come and drink. But it's also true that, that repentance and believing in Jesus is a command. God demands there is no other way. He demands that men and women turn from their sin and receive His Son. Paul, when preaching to the Athenians, noted the patience of God. And in light of Christ's coming, he says, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I like how James Boyce comments concerning this. He says, this is not something to be toyed with. This is not something to be delayed. God is our master, and he orders us to turn from sin and respond to him. And what is the the fruit of Jesus, the character of his gospel and its effects throughout human history? Pretty good track record. Hospitals, education, freedom, life, light, truth. This has impacted the world. It has changed hearts and brought about great charitable causes and and acts of mercy. Nothing, nothing compares to the character, to the fruit, the effects of the gospel throughout human history. Jesus is vindicated also by you, by me, by lives that are changed and lived out in ways that are consistent with the character of his message, the result of of our changed hearts to go and serve and give and sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus is proven true by the character, the fruit, the outcome of his command, a command which brings life. And there will be no doubt, no doubt as he is vindicated at the last day. Finally, Jesus vindicated himself by his obedience to the Father's will. Verse 50 also says, What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father. Everything he taught and did was in obedience to his Father. He was mocked by his family. He was hated by religious leaders, rejected for his claims and teachings, and he only cared for the approval of one, of his father. Jesus lived for the approval of his father. And we see this at times when the father audibly speaks and declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus' soul was troubled and he prayed, Father, glorify your name, his highest concern was the Father's glory and not the approval of men. And the Father responded saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 
And this is all that Jesus needed to hear. And the same should be true of us. There are times you know that there's nothing you can do to change someone's mind. You're unjustly accused of something. Is it good good enough for you to know God knows? He knows the truth. Those are hard circumstances, but we should care primarily and ultimately about what the Father thinks. Of course, we like to hear people say, good job, and there's nothing wrong. It's not sinful to want to please people, but at what cost? Today, more than ever, to speak the truth of the gospel, to speak the truth of what God calls sin, to be truly loving and pointing to God's word, which leads to life. These kinds of things will make you unpopular. The cost might be the loss of family or friends or job. You might be called names, villainized by our community. I can't believe I keep saying stuff like this, but this is where we're headed. This is where we're at and headed. So we need to count the cost. We need to be concerned about pleasing the Father and not be people pleasers. Be true to our faith. Be obedient to God. It's going to be costly. So we need to look to Christ. We need to prioritize what Jesus prioritized. We need to follow His example. We need to hold Him up as the only Savior, the only way to God. To, like Jesus, care mostly, if not solely, for God's approval. After all, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you ever hear that and think, well, actually, a lot of people could be against me. And I think the point is, well, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. If God is for me, who cares if anyone else is against me? So let's resolve, let's pray that God might keep us and use us to speak and live in such a way that we may be able to say, what I've done, I have done as God has taught me in his word. And if this is true, then we, we really won't need the approval of man. We won't need to fear the attacks of the world. Because in the end, we know that the only opinion that really matters is God's. And those of us who are in Christ will, will along with Jesus, be vindicated. Let's pray. Oh God, we do pray that you would give us a greater resolve to follow you, to obey you, to, to seek your glory in these days that, that we live in. I think we don't really understand and realize how much we need you in looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Lord, certainly our times are, are quickly growing more and more dark. Truth is ignored. Hearts are deceived. Sin is 
championed in our culture. And as we look, we might be tempted to fear. To just want some form of escape. But you've called us to go and make disciples. You've called us to be salt and light. Preserving what is good. Enhancing the beauty and goodness of life. Revealing also what is evil and pointing people to walk in your truth. And your word is truth. So give us a hunger for your word. To know and to love you. To share your son Jesus, our only Savior. Lord, help us to rightly represent you. Not to be people who are so confident of the truth that we're arrogant or condescending, uncaring, but really recognize the spiritual battle going on, the deceit, the way in which people are deceived. Lord, we, we, we can't be a people who take on that role of judge. You are the judge. But we can speak the truth of your word and we can correct lovingly, compassionately, to not be arrogant. Lord, we know that Jesus will be vindicated. We praise you for that. So we pray that many will turn from their sins, that they will trust in him, and that you would in some way use us for his glory. And we pray in his great name. Amen.